0: So let's get down to business with another episode of Start a Puzzle, brought to you by FullScale.io.
1: And we're back. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of the Start a Puzzle podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Conaway, founder and CEO of Innovate Her KC. And I got to tell you, friends, today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by Fullscale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult, but Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably. And they have the platform to help you manage that team. Visit Fullscale.io or click the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, friends. So today we have with us a guest who is doing work in a very, very important uh, area of of health and wellness. And some of you have have heard me talk on the show about my previous struggles in, in this area. And so I am just, I'm so very honored and so excited to talk to Bradford Holden, CEO of Resilient Life Science. Bradford, welcome to Startup Hustle.
0: Thanks, Lauren. Thank you for having me on. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Awesome. Well, I got to ask the perennial question, my friend. Tell us about your journey. Let's hear it. Bring it on.
0: Yeah, great. So where to start? I I guess I'll start by saying I grew up pretty fascinated in, in medicine and engineering. So it was pretty natural that I ended up studying biomedical engineering in undergrad. And from there, took a pretty hard pivot and joined the Marine Corps. So spent four years in the military as a combat engineer officer and got out in 2015, had a great experience and realized that, um, you know, I wanted to continue in this, in, in the world of leadership after my time serving in the military and leading teams there. I entered the startup world, so I actually worked at a wearable medical device startup in Palo Alto in a, like a proper Silicon Valley garage startup. It was an amazing experience before going off to business school and getting my MBA. After getting my MBA, I went into the tech world in Silicon Valley, worked for Autodesk as a product manager for AutoCAD. And then I joined a company called Infinitus Systems, which was using, um, excuse me, using speech recognition and text-to-speech, speech-to-text, to automate human phone calls for healthcare benefit verification. So had an awesome experience there growing the operations team. And then COVID happened and 2021 came around and in 2021, the news broke that the overdose death rate in the U S crossed hundred thousand annually. And that was just an astounding number to hear It's the number one killer of Americans under 50 and 80% of those are from opioid overdose specifically. And I had also recently lost a, a family member to health complications around opioid use and, and a combination of that and COVID, actually. And that had it front of mind for me. And I thought back to my experience working with wearable medical devices and thought to myself, hey, wait a minute, why can't we take the sensors that I know work on patients in a you know home care continuous monitoring situation? use those to detect an opioid overdose and then combine that with a on-body drug delivery system and use that to reverse somebody's overdose and, and save their life when no one else is around. So started looking into it, realized there's real potential for this. There was actually some university research from some great universities that had looked at proof of concept for this. So there was some scientific validity to the potential for this. And we said, okay, why is nobody commercializing this? And that kind of grew to uh, okay, well, I guess it's going to be up to us. So I talked to my co-founder, Charlie Proctor, who worked with me at Infinitus, and we decided that this was absolutely worth pursuing. So we decided to go full-time in April of 2022. That's when we started Resilient Life Science.
1: Absolutely incredible. And I, again, as somebody who has kind of a... I actually don't know too many people in the States who have who don't have an invested stake in the opioid crisis as we commonly hear it called in the media. Um, you know, I I know so many people whose lives have been touched by opioid overdose abuse. Um, it, Set the stage. You, you've done it. Actually, you've done a beautiful job of setting the stage for us, kind of talking about the the ten thousand foot view. This is a really big problem, but mm-hmm. I want to talk about it at an individual level because one of the things that I know, um, matriculating through rehabilitation, pro- a rehabilitation program, is that uh, when you are in the throes of an overdose, time is of the essence. Right? Like you do not have a very long period of time to stop. Uh, the I guess the flow, and I don't know the science behind it, so forgive me. But you don't you don't have a lot of time to stop the overdose before it starts initializing things like organ failure, and in, it, there's like deep permanent damage that can be done at this point. And so so the wearable technology with sensors that administrates like immediately administrates medication. That's it's such a game changer, you know. When you're out of it because you're in the throes of an overdose, what are you gonna do? You have to you have to depend on having somebody around who knows how to administrate these medications and somebody who can help. And because you're out of it, you're gone, you know. And and so it's really, I almost feel as though it might be empowering for a user who is you know caught up in addiction or maybe using a drug that they're not familiar with. Um, I almost feel like it would be empowering to know that you have this safeguard in place. It's kind of like a life alert bracelet almost, right? Is that kind of the feedback that you're hearing? Like talk to us about that point in the experience for users.
0: Yeah. So the um, awesome question. And uh, you give me a ton of thoughts as you're talking, of course, because it turns out I spend all my time thinking about this. Um, <laughs> <isn't it crazy? laughs> yeah. So um, first, as you're talking about like the, the, kind of the physiology side of it, right? The the part that, and this is a little bit of a, a tangent, but the part that ends up killing people from opioids, overdose, is that it stops your breathing, right? So the same thing that ends up killing someone is that they stop breathing, which means that they're not getting oxygen to their lungs, not getting to their blood. Oxygen saturation in their blood drops and, and they end up dying of um, anoxic brain injury or hypoxia in general. And that same mechanism that kills them is actually what we use to detect an overdose, right? We can see that somebody stops breathing. We can see the drop in their oxygen saturation. And we say, okay, this person's overdosing. Um, so that's how we think about this from the real-time perspective is, okay, the same thing that's risking your life is the exact same thing that we are measuring and then using to determine whether or not this person's at risk of, of dying from overdose. And that's when the device intervenes. Um, to the other question you asked about or the point you brought up, about the the empowerment and and the um, the life alert style of this device, right? That's absolutely what we're trying to provide. Um, Opioid use can be an isolating condition. People oftentimes use alone. There's a lot of stigma around opioid addiction in the US and that causes people to use alone. And while naloxone, commonly known by the brand Narcan, is super effective at reversing an overdose if it's given on time the majority of these deaths happen without anybody around oftentimes because people use alone so our device allows somebody to stay protected as if they were using with somebody else when they're not with somebody else right and i should say we are the device is not on the market so i can't make claims about a medical device uh, you know legally um (laughs) without saying but what we are developing intends to do that um so we are trying to provide that safety net. And whether that's for somebody who is in recovery and, and, and suffered from a, a relapse and ended up using again, or they're not ready to recover, and they, you know, maybe even they want to recover, but there aren't beds available in any rehabilitation facilities, right? This can help keep somebody safe until that time is right for them or during their journey of recovery. So it is that, it is that um, safety net for somebody. Um, yeah. interestingly that we have gotten questions about that being a enabler and actually having negative effects. I can talk about that too, but um, it, it is what we are trying to do is keep people safe throughout their journey.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's, it's the same kind of conversation that happens up about like safe needle programs. You know, you, mm-hmm. you have to, you, essentially, if you're coming at it through that lens, I feel like you have to view it as the lens of mitigating harm. Like, the fact is, we know that this is a problem. We know that users are addicts. And oftentimes, especially when they get to to points along the journey, like, that are further along, like, they don't, they have, they don't have the capacity, the ability. It's not, a, it's no, this is no longer a question of, I want to change. It's, I can't change. And, and that's the feeling I think that addicts have when we reach the end of our journey. You know, I remember before I went into rehab, I was like, I am, I am beholden to this drug. Like there is nothing, this is my life, you know, and you get kind of resigned. And so I almost feel like I I thought that I was going to die, you know, and I, and I almost feel like had I had a security blanket <laughs> and, and i i don't want to minimize what you're building mm-hmm. at all but like there there is a component of comfort and knowing that all right if i'm gonna be alone and if i have to do this thing that i am compelled to do that's what addiction is you know if i'm gonna do this thing at least i can be safer while doing it you know exactly I, so, so thank you you know for that work and I, i'm sure that there's controversy and there are people that are you know just telling you all of their opinions but the fact mm-hmm. is you are the product that you're building has the potential to meaningfully change lives. It has the potential to meaningfully help people along their reju- along their journey at whatever point they're at. And so I think that there's a lot to be said for that. Now, you said something really interesting, and I, I do want to drill down on it a little bit, but I'm, I'm very interested in your process. So you have this, you're, you're building on technology that you're familiar with that is used to address other issues um, talk to us about what it looked like to think through the product itself and then the, the first steps you had to take around that approval process, because it's it's pretty arduous from what I understand, right? Mm-hmm. No joke. <laughs> yeah.
0: So um, just to make sure I understood the question, it's like the first steps we thought about when determining the Device that we're like, you had the epiphany that
1: this technology is already in use. How can we apply it here? So, yep. so from from the epiphany point, what did the process look like?
0: Yeah. So, um, actually, the first thing I did was I texted my brother-in-law, who's a doctor, and I said, "Hey, can we use these like vital signs to detect overdose?" And I, I think I mentioned like heart rate first, and he said, "Oh, well, no. Actually, you're better off using uh, respiratory rate and and." Oxygen saturation. I was like, "Oh, great! We can do those too, right?" So, first, first thing was to get get a little scientific validity uh, for for the idea, and, and from there, a lot of it was and a huge challenge for building a successful device, especially in this space, is going to be patient adoption, right? So, it, adherence to medication in the U.S. is terrible. It's like fifty percent in general, um, and then you have a, a wearable device that's also challenging, and then um, our, our target population it's going to be, it, it again, adherence within that population can be challenging too to, to medications and, and interventions. So we have a situation where, okay, we really need to make sure that what, whatever we build is going to be incredibly usable and non-obstructive to daily life, right? So the first things we thought about were like, okay, how do we how do we make this like the best possible product for the user? And, and in that way, be confident that as we bring it to market and as we spend millions of dollars to get this through the FDA and to commercialize it, that it's actually going to be used by the people who need it. Um, So we looked at form factors. We looked at options for wearable devices. And what we decided is that in order to be the best possible product is we should just build a single device, right? Not A bunch of devices that then bluetooth connect to the phone or or you know are linked together that have like several different components worn on different parts of the body we just wanted the single thing that the person had to worry about not several things and the advantage of that is also that now you're not risking somebody dying because a bluetooth connection was lost between two devices or something like that right so we, we thought about the form factor and decided okay you know what we're going to do is is actually take inspiration from insulin pumps which are Now becoming more and more widely adopted, a patch-based insulin pump. Wear it on the abdomen. It's a great location because it's underneath the person's shirt, so no one's gonna, you know, see it on their arm or or shoulder and say, oh, you know, what's that? Tell me about it, right? So it allows it to be discreet and avoid that stigma issue for opioid use. And from there, we said, okay, well, let's let's start building this. What does it look like? And started playing it out and, and building early prototypes of just the sensing technology ended up hacking some medical devices together and building a, a full functioning prototype that I wore, went through some breathing exercises. It injected me with saline solution. This was like about a year ago. So we're like, okay, Hey, we, we made something work here now we need to you know, build it out of real stuff and not, not hack devices. So that was the very beginning and, and we kind of validated that this approach was reasonable. Um, I think later on you asked about how does this end up getting toward approval, right? So that is an arduous process. And a lot of that has yes, to do well with- well it
1: should be, by the yeah, way. <laughs> right.
0: we, we should be careful about what we sell as medical equipment in the United States. I, I agree with that. Um, so what needs to happen now is, first of all, going from like these early prototypes that we have that are 3D printed and, and using a lot of off-the-shelf components, and building more and more to be to the exact specifications for the device right so that's product development work that's um you know partnering with industrial design and you know PCB manufacturing and, and all of like all of the the real engineering work that needs to happen um and at the same time we we've, we've had a few conversations with the FDA to date and saying okay what is our regulatory pathway right how exactly is this going to be approved and one thing that they pointed out is that hey you have a pretty complicated system here Right there's a, a overdose detection tool, and there's also a drug delivery tool and because of that, you're going to be regulated as this you know special kind of product called the combination device. We're actually going to be more of a drug than a device in the fda's eyes, and you know we, we kind of established the pathway for what's going to need to happen in terms of product development then all the clinical research that we have to do, and then the the quality testing and documentation that needs to happen. So we've actually dialed back a little bit from, the, from there and said, okay, you know, the first thing we should do is get a sensor through the market, right? So the half of the device is being able to detect an overdose. With that, having a cellular component that can call for the friend or family, or nine one one, depending on that user's choice, to to send a rescue team to them, is the first step, right? Then the second step is combining that with the auto injector. So we realized we could parse those two things out from each other, and that would help us get something to people in need faster, and then have what we would call a predicate device for our final product um, that we can submit to the FDA. So that was probably a lot. I'll, I'll pause and let you ask any further questions. Yeah, I mean, right? it's,
1: it's really, really interesting. And I, I think that you, you're you actually so smart in the way that you approached it. You know, Let's kind of divide these Divide and conquer, I guess, I almost feel like, I, I mean, we've talked to founders in, in the biosciences area, and the medical area, and, and every single time I talk to them, like, talk to us about the approval process. They're just like, ah, oh, it's a beast. So I, <laughs> I, I commend you for, for finding a way to, to kind of streamline the process a little bit. One of the things, have you reached a point where you are doing cl- clinical trials yet,
0: so we just wrapped up our first feasibility study, right? So clinical okay. trials, like th- there's a very specific like NIH definition of a clinical trial where you're measuring outcomes of, of a specific intervention against a, a, um, a control group, right? Yeah. And based on that definition, we have not done a clinical trial, but we've done human research wearing prototypes of our device. And what that was focused on first is just showing that our device is capable of measuring vital signs, right? Yeah. So if you think about it, like abstraction layers in, in a program or something, there's, you know, there's the raw data coming from our sensors. Then we have to interpret those to vital sign signals, right? So what is your heart rate? What is your breathing rate? What is your oxygen saturation? Then from there, there's the algorithm to say, is this person overdosing? And right. then from there, there's the actions that, that take place. Do you inject naloxone? Do you call 911? Right. So, um, The very first step is what we did in this last research study is just say, hey, okay, look, we're we're measuring heart rate. Our device effectively sits on the abdomen and measures heart rate, measures breathing rate, measures SpO2 levels. So I would say, yes, we're doing our our research studies in in humans, which is really exciting. It's great to get that milestone uh, taken care of, I should say. But um, there's quite a bit more that we'll need to get before we submit to FDA.
1: Well, and I got to tell you, like, I, you said earlier that you were, you were one of the first Guinea pigs with that saline solution injection. And I I started, I was like, you poor thing. (laughs) How how many times do you think you've tested this yourself? Just out of curiosity.
0: (laughs) You know, um, it was only that happened in like a, the, the actual full system where we were testing with an injection system only like. Only like a a couple dozen, maybe maximum, in rapid succession. Only a couple
1: dozen, like "Ah, no big thing. And I'm just like, yeah, but you're you're definitely electing to get injected (laughs) by stuff. I don't. (laughs) That's still pretty impressive, man. (laughs) Well, so so,
0: (laughs) Um, the needles are really small.
1: Yeah. Well, so one of the things that I'm I'm super curious. Actually, you know what? Really quickly, friends, I do need to remind you. I I got so excited to ask the next question, but I have to remind you. Finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult. It's, it's always really hard for me. And, and now that FullScale is around, I feel so much better about it. Because you can visit FullScale.io and you can build a software team quickly and affordably. I love them so much. Use the FullScale platform to define your technical needs and then see what available developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. Visit FullScale.io or visit the show notes to learn more. All right. Bradford, I need to know. <laughs> this is what I got so excited to ask about. So, so are you involving, uh, heavy opioid users in your, in your research and in your product design process?
0: Yes. Um, so absolutely. What,
1: what are you hearing from them? Are they excited? Are they like, talk to us about their feelings Something it. Cause that's really what matters, right? That's who you're designing for. Talk yeah.
0: to us about that. Yeah. And it's interesting because, um, you mentioned earlier the idea of having like, this this being a really attractive thing. To some people, it is. To some people, there is a, a segment of opioid users who are less interested in this either because it's, you know, this is another thing I have to worry about. I'm worried about it dosing the Lapsome when I don't need it. So there's definitely people who are concerned about it. But in the market that we have identified as people who are receiving or seeking treatment while while actively using opioids or people who are, living with family members that were helping support them and have a support network around them while actively using. We have 87% of the folks that we've talked to in that group. And we actually ran a survey to validate specifically. This would be interested in this technology specifically for, for using it. So, we, you know, we have some concrete number of validation saying like, yes, we're, we're looking at the right target market that we're trying to bring this to within the opioid use population. That's about 1.7 million Americans there. Yeah. Um, we actually did our first research on with people doing interviews in, in Kensington and Philadelphia. So on the streets of Philadelphia, talking to people using opioids there. And the the feedback was a lot, I would say a lot of excitement and hope and, and so, oh, that's really cool. Um The, the form factor was a thing we asked about, right? Like how would you want to wear this? And the big thing was like, yeah, I want it. I don't want to have to explain this to a, a family member if I see them. Um we got an interesting one of like, hey, don't make it too bulky because I don't want someone to think I'm I'm wearing a gun in my waistband with a little oh, yeah. bulky in my so, Okay, yeah, I that's, didn't a, even that's think a good about point. that. Yeah, this is why you
1: get <laughs> so, multiple multiple sources for your your feasibility studies. <laughs>
0: yeah. And that's and that's good. So, um the that's something I would not have thought about, right? But yeah. it's it, it one of the, you know, one of the key reasons that you do customer interviews is because you're going to think about things that aren't from your normal perspective. In terms of um, actually the the last study we did, and there's going to be times where we're doing research with people that are using opioids and and times where we're doing it with people that aren't using opioids. The last study we did was specifically just for like, okay, can you measure somebody's heart rate? That was just general healthy population because it's a lower risk study to do and it's actually faster to get approved. But essentially, all the research we will do with the device from now on, in addition to the market research, is also going to be specifically with the population using opioids.
1: Yeah, well, and you said something interesting, and it just reminded me. So, I, and I'm going to apologize to the audience. I do not remember the specific specific statistic, and Bradford, I bet you you might know it. But um, there is a there's a little talked about problem within the addiction community. And that is people who are actually actively in recovery and seeking treatment, when they relapse, they're actually more likely to die from overdose than folks who have just been habitual continuous users. And it's because often people overestimate like if they've been clean for you know weeks or months, their tolerance has dropped. So often users overestimate their ability. They're using like pre-rehab amounts of a drug. And so they, they tend to overdose more frequently. And I can't remember the exact statistic, but it's just something to keep in mind. So when you say that your users, like often they, they might even be in recovery. Really you're creating a fail-safe. <laughs> like if you relapse again, Here's your safety blanket. Like, you know, go go forth and and good luck with your recovery, <laughs> right? Like
0: Exactly. Yep.
1: That's a really and, cool thing.
0: <laughs> and that was one of the things that we heard that this was something surprising from our customer interviews too was that when we talked to people that were in recovery, one of the interesting points someone brought up was like, yeah, I actually like this device too because it would remind me of where I am in this journey too, right? It's like yeah. seeing this it's not just a comfort blanket, but it's a reminder of of my journey.
1: Yeah, uh,
0: so that's that was really interesting to for me to hear as well. I don't know the statistic. Um, another common uh, scenario for this is is leaving prison too, though, right? So yeah. people leaving prison, I believe there I saw I was like 127 times more likely to die from overdose in the first two weeks after leaving prison.
1: Yeah. Oh Definitely wow.
0: Of that exact same thing, so. Generally, in, within any population, your risk of overdose is, is even for people that are actively using, like you mentioned, it's not super high, but there are these critical points in people's journeys where it's super high, right? So yeah. it is this right after leaving prison, right after leaving inpatient recovery, um, right after somebody overdoses and is seen at the ER, there's a 25% chance that they'll be back within a month. Yeah. So- right after an overdose is another case where we can really identify like okay this is the time that you really should have this device on and just to to be safe in case of a relapse
1: yeah well, so so I just wanted to kind of underscore the importance of the work that you're doing once again. And I do I I, I just realized that it, I have been remiss. I owe you. Uh, I owe you a congratulations, because you recently you made you made the startup hustle tops Pittsburgh startups list, and I forgot to commend you for that. But I also believe like you you've won a couple other. Pitch competitions, awards, uh, social impact investment. That's what it was. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about that. Like you, you, you've been doing all of this work to develop this product and bring it to market. But talk about what that process on the, on the business side has been like.
0: Yeah. So um, I'll start by saying the, the venture investment or the social impact investment was the Richard King Mellon Foundation, which is a, a great philo- philanthropic organization. Is that in like Pittsburgh. Carnegie
1: Mellon Mellon?
0: Yes, of the same last name. Um, that that is the the RK Mellon Foundation. Yes. Okay. So they have a um, they have a annual social impact venture competition, which we competed in last year, and actually around this time last year. Um, and it is for companies that are looking to make a difference in the world. And we were one of I, I think around 100 applicants and happened to win, which was super exciting for us. And um, you know that organization has been incredible to work with. Uh, just a lot of Great support from the team, great publicity, helping us get our name out there has been excellent. Um, and being con- connected to Pittsburgh is also really important to us too, right? So we've um, we, we found a great community there and RK Mellon has been very centric to that experience of, of building a startup in Pittsburgh, which you know, is a great tech hub. Um, and I, I would say it is not maybe often talked about, but it, we, we've had a great experience with it so far.
1: Well, good. (laughs) What are some of the other, I I mean, I feel like there are a lot of priorities that you're working on right now, you know, that, that FDA approval thing, which, you know, not insignificant and, you know, raising capital, like how are you managing to juggle all of these things that are demanding your attention and all of them are crucial. Like you're right now, you're in a very, very, um, important part in your company's journey, let's yep. say. But, but talk to us, have you been able to balance the business side with the medical side with the personal side? Like, Has that been difficult for you to do?
0: Um, I think it's challenging for everybody, right? It, or if you're starting a company, it, it is a, a ton to juggle. But yesterday I was sitting in a call and we were uh, negotiating a, a quote for pharmaceutical ingredient Stability testing for naloxone, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm really focused on the line items on, on this quote, and and how can we adjust this to to make it meet the needs of of what we're asking for right now. And I, I paused for a second and said, I have like the coolest job in the world right now. Like, one day I'm I'm talking about like the or like on on the whiteboard next to me we have drawings talking over signal processing algorithms for detecting the or like you know improving heart rate detection. And now I'm sitting down talking about pharmaceutical testing and, and like, there's just so many cool things I get to do on a daily basis. It's really exciting. And I think that's what draws so many people to entrepreneurship in general. But, you know, obviously there's challenges with it too. Um, it, it takes a lot of time and it can be hard to, I, I think the one thing that a lot of startups challenge or have a challenge with is like, what is the most important thing I can be doing right now? Right. There's always yeah. like 50,000 things it can be. So what is the most important thing for us? Yeah. Um since you mentioned like the business side and the, the fundraising side, I would say the key challenge that we're working on, and it's a, it's somewhat unique in our world. is proving that there's a market for this and, and being able to demonstrate that right before we have a product. So with medical devices and pharmaceuticals, generally, you know, you can't sell it before, it's FDA approved. So that, that's common across all FDA regulated technology. So you have to have some faith that there really is a market there and you can do some things to approximate the market. It's not like an, an app where you can launch a beta version and get a bunch of people using it. Um, you know, it's there's right. some more complications, but then on top of it for our technology, it's also a unique distribution channel that we need to go through right if we we look at narcan and the success of narcan and how they commercialized as really a a guide for how we should bring our product and technology to market and a lot of that is through state programs that are funding harm reduction programs funding community centers that are distributing harm reduction uh technology or or lock zone safe needle exchanges stuff like that yeah and you're selling to different people than a lot of other medical devices, the funding is coming from a different source. And then you have this a different interaction between the person providing the, the product and the user as well. So there's just a different business model to prove out as we develop this technology. So that's one of the things that we're really focused on right now is like, okay, how do we show that this is a repeatable and scalable business model to sell this within states? And what we're working on to do that is, is building pilot programs to say, okay, the state will fund um, a a number of people to wear a investigational version of this device. And that shows that states will actually put their money where their mouth is in terms of wanting a product like this. And then we can take that to investors and say, hey, look, we we have success. People are wearing this in the pilot programs. People are paying for it to get to people. So that is is one of my key focuses right now is really kind of building a sales funnel for a investigational product um, in, in terms of piloting it.
1: So when you're ready, you can really be ready. That's exactly, no, that, yeah. that's really powerful. So is there anything, like you, you're you very clear, like I, one of the things I love about this interview is like, you're very clear on like, this is what we're doing. This is why this is, and this is the path forward. And I I love that, but I'm curious, is there, is there anything? It must be your like, by the way, thank you for your service. It must be your Marine background. Like you, you have a very disciplined approach, I feel. <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> But at any rate, is there anything that you wish you had done differently or that you would, you would change if you could?
0: Oh my goodness. Uh, so much, <laughs> right, I think about that. Um, yeah, there's a, 10, always- Like annoying... things
1: just screeched through my head because that's like every <laughs> entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah,
0: and especially as a first, I'm, I'm sure it happens to everybody and every time, it, but for a first time entrepreneur, it's definitely like so much that you just don't know that you don't know. I think one thing early on is we we started before we built anything. We did a lot of what I'm doing right now and trying to sell the product, wanting to feel good that there's really going to be a market. So that's what led us to do our research on the streets of Philadelphia. We talked to people in programs that would fund this device um, or to purchase the device, not from the investment angle. We also talked to investors, of course, and raised money. Um, but I would say that I wish before, if I were to do it again, I, I would go further down the sales pipeline before starting to build just to, just to almost like learn more about how that works. I don't think we, obviously we can't sell a product before having it, but really yeah. getting as deep as possible into the sales and really being able to say, this is exactly like, this is like all of the signatures that need to go on this page. Um, when talking about the the business model will be helpful. So that's something that I'm really focused on now. And if I had done it a year ago, I'd, you know, would have been even better.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I certainly get that. But I I think you're absolutely right. Like, I have never met a founder who didn't have a million different ways that they had failed or things that they hadn't thought about or. And it's it's I think it's actually one of the most frustrating and yet rewarding parts of entrepreneurship. Like we're in it, We're we're in this shit and we're going to do it, even if we even if it doesn't look pretty all the time. Um, so, so I do, I am curious for our listeners, you know, not everybody is going to focus on opioid addiction. Not everybody is going to go into, to med tech, but what are some key pieces of advice that you would give to the entrepreneurs, the founders out there, or maybe those who are thinking about becoming a founder?
0: Yeah. Um, let's see. I would say. And kind of related to the last point, one of the pieces of advice that I got from my my previous CEO, who's a brilliant CEO and entrepreneur, Ankit Jain, the CEO of Infinitus, is in in paraphrasing. Um, you know, you don't need to have all the answers. You just need to be confident that you're going to be able to figure it out, right? Like. other people have said like, Oh, if I knew how hard this was going to be, I never would have started the company. Right. A lot of entrepreneurs will say that. And I I think that if you're going to start a company, you know, it's going to be hard. And you also should know that like, there's not a chance in hell that you're going to have it all figured out when you start the company. Right. But just being confident that you can solve the problems and having that kind of can do mindset of like, yeah, I can, I can handle this. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, that gave me that gave me a lot of confidence to start a company. Like, okay, I don't need to be the world's leading expert in, in every aspect of what we're doing here. I just need yeah. to be able to find the right people, figure out myself, and, and, and build the right team and expertise to do this. So, so that was a, a huge part of it. Um, another thing that I thought about was, especially for folks that are thinking about starting a company, would be that there's never a right time to to start a company, or and. and kind of thought yeah. about that the same way with, my, with my wife and I, like, there's never like, there's never like the right time to have a kid. It's never, it's never like an easy time to do something. Yeah. right? It, so if you're thinking about it, like some, there there are some times that might be worse than ever others, but a framework I've thought about it is like, is there any reason to believe that this is going to be easier to do in one year from now or two years from now? Right. And if the answer is no, then I, uh, you know, then then go ahead and just, just, start started take the yeah. leap.
1: I yeah, That's so clutch. Like I I have so many so many friends who are interested in starting companies and they're like, "Well, you know, we want to wait until the kids get through." And it's like, "I understand that like I, we all have limitations and we all have things in our like the, the fact is it's never going to be easy. Yep. So, you know, it, it, there's this saying in the entrepreneurial community, like you, you have to jump off the cliff and build your wings on the way down. Like, and that's yep. essentially what you're speaking to. Like, you're going to figure it out. <laughs> you're probably going to figure it out, but, but yeah, like I'm a hundred percent with you. Like if you're really called to do this, I, and, and you said something that I thought was hilarious, like thinking about, The entrepreneurs who start companies because they think it's going to be easier—they're like, "I don't want to have a boss," and it's like, actually, you have a thousand bosses, and they're called clients. So let's not (laughs) uh, let's not you know soften the blow. Like it's going to be hard. There are aspects of entrepreneurship that absolutely suck, but (laughs) it is also one of the most glorious, most empowering, most like it's one of the coolest things you can do, in my humble opinion. Yeah. right i mean how do you feel think, about it <laughs> yeah i
0: think so i i um like i said uh, my my example from yesterday in looking at uh, yeah i have the coolest job i could imagine right yeah. I, it, it's great and it's incredibly challenging and there's a you know there's a high risk of failure in any venture that you start so you you're, you have that in the back of your mind and there's a little you know persistent anxiety i think in any entrepreneur right but yeah. um but you're working on or, you know, I feel like I'm working on one of the most important challenges in, in facing the U.S. right now, facing the world right now. And I'm yeah,
1: for sure there's,
0: there's nothing I'd rather be doing. I, I actually uh, not to take this on too far of a tangent, but when I left the Marine Corps, I, I stood in front of a, um, a team of junior officers and Marines and, and said, hey, you know, I think that when I leave, I'm actually going to be able to do more good for the world as a civilian, than I could leading troops in combat. And that was a, you know, sounded like a cool thing to say at that time. And I realized that that was a pretty damn high bar. So, I, you know, I actually, what I'm doing right now, I'm like, okay, it's, it's, I, I'm living up to this uh, insane promise I made eight years yeah. ago now. So, um,
1: It's so interesting. As you're talking, like I'm like vibrating with recognition because we're not we're not addressing the same problems. But I'm just I'm I I, like I love my work and I don't always love my work, but I love what I do because it's important (laughs) and it matters and I'm passionate about it. I was I was at an event last week, really quick little story, but this 17 year old kid came up to me and I, I had just gotten done speaking about something and he was like, "Can you tell me how to make money?" And I mean, first of all, like. Hi, nice to meet you. Like that was literally the first thing that he said to me. But I was like, uh, I mean, yeah, probably. Like I can probably tell you how to make money, but you're asking the wrong question. The question, what are you best better at than anybody else in the world? And what are you never gonna get sick of? <laughs> those are the questions to ask. And then if you can come to me with those answers, yes, I can tell you how to make money. You know, like that's what it's all about. So I, I love that that's a part of your core. Now. I do have a human question for you. Are you ready? I am ready. I'm very, very excited. Uh, uh, Do you want the serious one or do you want the silly one?
0: Oh, boy. Um, Let's do silly. I I have a fairly serious subject matter for the business, so we can go to silly for this.
1: I mean, it's not not like super silly, but (laughs) if you had to pick the worst television series ever made, what would win? That was the kind of silly one. Oh, boy. Okay. Are you a TV watcher? I guess I should ask that first.
0: <laughs> uh, not, I, I, a little bit. Yeah, I, I watch some TV, but I, I don't spend much time on bad TV. I, that's all so, right, that's right, a, right.
1: That's Well, all right. I'll go to the next one. This is the kind <laughs> of serious one. But if you could reverse the ongoing extinction of any animal now endangered, which animal would you choose to save?
0: My goodness gonna brush up on my endangered animals i know Uh,
1: i'm I'm trying to think through like so like rhinos or indeed i'm like for some reason i'm thinking of like african sahara animals i'm like lions and tigers and bears oh my
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) how are Mm -hmm. manatees doing i I feel like when i was in in my first three i was into manatees for some reason um
1: Well, and the thing that breaks my heart about that's a really great answer. And the thing that breaks my heart about manatees is is like most of their extinction, it like, in fact, from what I understand, like almost all of their extinction is human based. It's people out joyriding in, you know, with boats and hitting them with propellers and stuff. And I'm just like, stop it. Can we stop? (laughs) They're just so peaceful.
0: (laughs) Yeah. at, at the risk of choosing an animal that might not be endangered anymore. Cause I haven't looked at this in, in about 20 years, I'll, I'll say manatees. And, okay. um,
1: I, li- be, I like that. And our, our beautiful, glorious it's... little sea cows. <laughs> That's a great answer. And this, this was a great, great interview. And I got to thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with us and congratulations again on top Pittsburgh startups. <laughs> awesome.
0: Well, Lauren, thank you so much for, for having me on the show and for the great questions i Absolutely enjoyed this. And uh, yeah, thanks again.
1: I am so, so glad to hear it. And friends, something else that I'm really glad about, I'm glad that FullScale is around. Do you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders? FullScale can help. They have the people and the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit FullScale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions and then let the platform match you up with fully vetted, highly experienced software engineers, testers, and leaders. At FullScale, they specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. Learn more when you visit FullScale.io or click the link down in the show notes. And friends, I kind of feel like a broken record, and it might be because I've done two recordings today, but I'm going to say it again we host here at Startup Hustle, we do this for you. We do this for founders. We are founders. We know how hard it can be. We want to share the stories of people doing really incredible work. And we want to talk to you about the topics that you want to hear about. And so I'm going to, I have an ask. And my ask is reach out to us. You can find us at startuphustle.xyz, that's our website. You can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, TikTok, all all of the socials. But reach out to us and let us know. If you know of a founder that needs to have their story heard, we want to talk to them. If you have a topic that we haven't addressed or even one that you want us to address further, let us know. We are here for you. We are here to give you content that you need to empower you to found amazing companies. And we hope that we can help you do that. We just want to hear from you. We are very grateful that you come back and listen to us week after week. We hope that you keep doing so, and we will catch you next time.